Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. The word of the Lord. A number of years ago, I knew a man who in the weeks before his wedding uh, was commenting to a friend of his that uh, he was looking forward to his wedding because, as he said, 20 plus years is a long time to wait. Of course, his friend was a Jewish PhD student who, when he heard him say that, literally stopped dead in his tracks. And as he froze, he looked at my friend and said, so this is going to be your first time with your wife-to-be? And of course, my friend very sheepishly said, uh, yeah. And this Jewish guy was completely frozen, after which, though, his face kind of relaxed and he goes, oh, right, right, right. Your religion thinks that sex is evil. And I've always been fascinated by that story. How is it that this, this, this person had grown up in, in the South and somewhere in his cultural encyclopedia drew the conclusion that Christians believe that sex is an evil thing. Maybe that's what we're projecting as the church to the world around us. But if that's true, I tried to convince you two weeks ago, and I'm really grateful for uh, Foster Gullet being there on the spot. I'm nowhere near as handsome as Foster, that's for sure. I watched him on the live stream and thought, that's a good-looking man. It's quite okay. But you'll have to do with the point of whatever you've got now. <clears throat> but I tried to mention a couple of weeks ago that the Bible is emphatically pro-sex, overwhelmingly so. Even from the beginning and the ending of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, you have naked Adam looking at naked Eve and, and reciting love poetry to her. You're now flesh of my flesh, he says. You get to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 19, and we find that all of human history culminates in the wedding supper of the Lamb. You get in between there the great Hebrew love poem called the Song of Solomon, where you have passages like this in chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, where the man looks at the wife and says, Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like cluster of fruit. I said, I will climb the tree. I will take hold of its fruit. That's in the Bible. <laughs> A man celebrating his wife's body in the midst of the marriage bed. And there's actually plenty more where that came from. And so what I think this suggests to us is, is I don't think there ought to be room for prudishness among Christians. You know, prude is somebody who is easily sort of shocked even at the mere mention of sex because of propriety or decorum. And I realize that we live in a sexual climate that's sort of undulating underneath all of us. And it may be that retreat from any conversation about sex is tempting to us. But I do think that we're in a little bit of trouble if we start getting holier than the Bible, <laughs> than the way we talk about sexuality. But I would submit to you this morning that it is precisely because of the beauty of human sexuality, that the Bible safeguards it with the handrails that it does. God puts these guardrails because it is the most delightful and therefore the most dangerous of all human capacities, even in the midst of its otherworldly experience. Tim Keller was once uh, saying that sex is a little bit like fire. Fire can warm and purify if it's properly contained. But if not, it can really hurt you create permanent scarring, infect, and destroy. So the point is that God cares so much about sex that he warns his people not to misuse it. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to begin to unpack by way of illustration 
And in hopes of creating a conversation, this whole question of the Bible's understanding of how sex gets corrupted and distorted. And I've chosen somewhat arbitrarily five different distortions for us to unpack. Hopefully that'll lead us to more conversation about it. Okay? So number one, five distortions of sexuality. Number one, I want to talk a little bit about what I'm going to call marital sexlessness. Bear with me for a moment. I want to read before we start there from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through, 5, 3 through 5, where Paul says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So do not deprive each other except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You know, it comes as a great shock to people when I mention it, but in addition to the pandemic we're experiencing, there is an equal epidemic going on of married couples not engaging in sex, or what are becoming known as sexless marriages. Uh, the statistics that I've been reading say that couples who engage in sex, they identify it, Less than 10 times a year are considered to be that particular category. Uh, while, and that is considered to be about 15% of American marriages, according to statistics. While 10% of that group report having sex maybe once every six months. Now look, I realize that I approach the topic like this with great caution. Because there really are just a myriad of, of, of issues. Some of those issues are medical, some of them are emotional. And I do think it makes us, ought to be, we ought to be very hesitant about being too close to identify exactly what frequency means for your marriage. Not only that, there's plenty of couples who are perfectly satisfied with where they are in terms of frequency, and that's fine. I see no reason biblically to upset that cart. And there's no reason to sort of heap shame on people who are having legitimate difficulties with sex that are honestly beyond their control and have medical issues attached to them. I just want to draw attention to the fact that in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul makes a shockingly egalitarian point about sexual ownership when he says it's entirely mutual. The man has no more rights over his wife's body than the wife does, and vice versa. And then he warns them against unnecessary deprivation as a way of avoiding temptation. By the way, knowledge that would have landed in the ancient Near Eastern culture as radical. We know from a lot of ancient sources that sex was a very much of a power issue in that culture. And it was the, it was the, it was the purview of the privileged to use sex in any way in which they wanted to. So when Paul comes in and says, no, 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 male and female are equal when it comes to access to the marriage bed, that was a bombshell in that culture. And maybe in ours. Again, I don't have time to dive into this much more. Simply to say, though, that the marriage bed, I would say, is probably one of the most natural places to begin talking about the health of our marriage and maybe exploring some of the ways in which we might have settled into patterns and expectations that, I don't know, may have been harmful for each other. In other words, communication in the marriage, I think, is far more important as we deal with these statistical realities than is some arbitrary number about consistency. So marital sexlessness. I think that's a first distortion. Number two, we've got to look at the question of verbal obscenity as well. 
really quickly on this one. Do you remember back in the spring, we looked at the book of Ephesians, and we came across Ephesians 5, 3, and 4, where Paul says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul says that anyone who abuses sex makes jokes about sex, or joins in with those abusing sex, he goes on to say, don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, now look, dig back into your memory banks from this spring. That word inheritance, when we studied Ephesians, was a big deal, wasn't it? Because from Ephesians 1.18, we found that Paul talked about the fact that God himself has an inheritance. And that inheritance is in the saints, Remember how we dove into that? In other words, because of Jesus' work on the cross, we, we, God's people, Christians, can be thought of as God's inheritance. Don't you remember this? God looks at his people, and you make him feel wealthy when he looks at you because of what Jesus did on the cross. So therefore, that, 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 that question of, of, of inheritance comes up in Paul's mind when he's talking about intimacy, That's the association. So follow the logic. He's saying, if when the way you talk, in the jokes that you tell, in the references that you make, if you begin to mock and belittle this most vivid example of human intimacy in sexuality, how then will you expect to have intimacy with the object of that symbol in God? Well, Paul doesn't mix his words. He says, you won't. You can't because those two mix each other up. And for that reason, Christians have always had a very holy reverence for sexual talk. doesn't mean that we never talk about it, quite the opposite. But when we do, we speak of it as a celebratory, sacred, wonderful, beautiful, joy-giving thing. So that's the second sort of a distortion. Third distortion, and this one's the most obvious one. Uh, we would call this adulterous unfaithfulness. King Solomon in Proverbs 5.18 is speaking to a young man when he says this. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Now look, The word there that you have translated forbidden in Proverbs, uh, in verse 20 there, uh, is oftentimes translated as um, strange in other translations. Maybe you have it in your translation as um, a foreign woman, okay? And by the way, the the writer of of the proverb is not there condemning mixed-race marriages. The Bible Nowhere forbids that. Can we please remove that from the cultural lexicon of people's expectations about the Bible? But it's talking about sex with someone who is not your spouse. That person is foreign, strange, alien to you. Let me see if I can unpack this. If you decided, let's say, to dive into the deep end of a swimming pool without any scuba equipment on you, the environment down there is foreign, strange to your lungs. In other words, every bit as much as your lungs were not made for underwater breathing, your marital relationship is not made for invaders, for interlopers. 
Adultery is as alien to your soul as water is to your lungs. Now, why am I framing this uh, point this way? For this reason, because the feeling of adultery couldn't be more opposite, could it? I mean, so often in the midst of those particular struggles, we talk about, you know, insatiable desires. We talk about the need to be true to myself. We talk about the years of frustration that pushed us into it. Who knows the truthfulness of any of those things? But you've got to realize that at that moment of temptation, God is contrasting what I feel with what he knows to be real. And that is, no matter how natural or perfectly fine it might feel to take a great big gulp of that water at the bottom of a swimming pool, it is alien to you. It's a deadly experience to us, somehow, regardless of the things that I'm feeling when I'm in the midst of it. I really do think that when you frame a struggle to stay faithful to your spouse in that particular way, there's a real power, for, power to it because it sort of sets it in a different question, doesn't it? I think oftentimes, if, 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 well, let's be, let's be straightforward. If you are wrestling this morning with a temptation to be unfaithful to your spouse... I do think oftentimes the prayers that Christians have will be things like, Oh, Lord, please, please, would you just take this desire away from me? Would you just cause it to disappear if you don't want me to do it? But what if all of a sudden the change was something like this? Lord, actually, would you rather show me what the end of this desire is? Can you give me a picture of the death that awaits me on the other side of that particular decision? Maybe that might be different. I don't know. Number four, the fourth distortion. We have to talk about pornography. And I don't know how much time I need to spend talking about pornography as a public menace at this point. It's been pretty well documented by this time. Uh, and its proliferation, if you're struggling with, is, is also um, should be assumed by us at this point. I was reading just this summer in preparation for this that a, apparently a pornographic website called Pornhub reported that when the heights of the early parts of the shutdown, the pandemic, Every five minutes, that website was transmitting more data than the entire comments of the contents of the New York Public Library. So yeah, let that sink in if it hasn't already. The second thing that I think has been well documented, especially in religious circles, is just how much shame is attached to pornographic use. It doesn't matter how cavalier we get with it, there's still a fundamental wrongness that strikes the hearts uh, of people who engage in it. And honestly, what happens is, is that begins to create a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You've heard me make this argument on a number of occasions. The more frequent the use, the more shame people heap up on themselves. But what happens is we try to use that embarrassment of shame of engaging in that material as incentive not to do it again. And it does just the opposite. It just creates that much more insecurity and pushes me further into it. And so there's a part of me just this morning, for the sake of, again, discussion, that wants to try to maybe look at a different tack, a slightly different tack on this question. Because one of the things that we've noticed in this study we're doing this particular fall and spring is that God not just doesn't just call us to proclaim a hope and to build a home, but to actually launch a healing. And so what we've seen is the Ten Commandments do not just have individualized application. It's not just about dealing with my individual heart, but there is, can we say, a social dimension 
to these commands as they go out into the world around us. And so some of the care that I'm trying to apply myself to when it comes to obedience to the Ten Commandments ought to have an eye to that world. So when it comes to the pornographic industry, it is so well documented how painfully exploitive that industry is, especially to women. A highly cited study from Dr. Gail Dines found that 90% of a random sample of porn videos contain some kind of combination of physical degradation or verbal aggression almost always directed towards women. It's exploitive. So much so that it led one anti-pornography activist to say something that I thought was profound. He says, I'm not interested in a world where men really want to watch porn but resist because they've been shamed for doing it. Listen, listen, listen. I'm interested in a world where men are raised from birth with such an unshakable understanding of women as living human beings that they are incapable of being aroused by something they know is exploiting them. This is a little different to me, I think. What if I framed, what if we framed our struggle with this, whether it's an individual struggle, whether it's a family struggle, whether it is a society and municipal struggle, in terms of our goal as Christians is to protect the oppressed. That ought to be a goal of ours, to relieve suffering wherever we find it. And here we have an incredibly popular industry that's hurting people. It's a different tack, maybe? I don't know. Fifthly and finally, we have to talk about homosexuality. And I realize that in three minutes there is no way to do any kind of real introduction for this. Bear with me for a moment. <clears throat> but in case you haven't noticed, in the LGBT sort of um, movement very quickly won the cultural battle to normalize and destigmatize same-sex erotic uh, attraction. And I think a lot of the great strides that movement made were due in large part to the fact that they had married their movement to a civil rights conception. Uh, in other words, you, you, you find them sort of encouraging people who are still remain antagonistic <clears throat> about the viability of those relationships not to be on the wrong side of history. You really want to be that person on the wrong side of history as we begin to sort of come out in gay and lesbian uh, normalization? Now look, I'm, I may surprise you a little bit here. From the outset, I don't think that we ought to be too repelled by that framing on the outset. No society should ever take its civil rights for granted, ever. And there should be no Christian under any circumstance who should ever advocate, much less be dismissive of, any kind of violence or bullying against either same-sex couples or those who are same-sex attracted. That is out of bounds for a Christian. But regardless of how we understand human sexuality in different ways, we have to honor the unavoidable fact that every individual from the gay community or whatever else are created in the image of God. And therefore, they deserve our honor. And I would argue even baseline human protections for it. Now, we're going to argue over what those protections are. That's fine. But there's an instinct, I think, that says that under no circumstances do we deny the fact that these are people created in God's image. That creates a baseline for conversation, does it not? Now, having said that, it does seem important to say, though, at the outset, that our denomination, and this is just a way of being clear about it, belongs to a tradition which has rejected the attempts to try to twist the Bible into saying that there is nothing wrong with homosexual practice or same-sex erotic relationships. We reject that. 
We've heard the arguments. We've seen the twisting of the plain sense of Scripture, and we reject it. On the contrary, the consistent witness of Scripture is that the act of sex is reserved always and only between one man and one woman in the covenant bonds of Christian marriage. Now look, it's a much longer conversation for another day, but in the four places where you get direct forbidding of homosexuality, that's Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Romans chapter 1, and 1 Corinthians 6, there's a clear condemnation of homosexual practice as well as an affirmation of the fact that indeed it is a reversal of God's intention for human flourishing. And I realize, especially to the younger generation, who knows what the college students are thinking right now, the first reaction to that is oftentimes, oh, really? Y'all are one of those kind of churches? And you, know, you suddenly brace yourself to be ready to be labeled as oppressive, hate speech loving, right wing wackos or something like that. I don't know. But all I can do in our time that we have remaining is to simply make an appeal to those who would caricature us in that way. And I'm only talking about Christ Presbyterian Church. Is I have never known this particular body of God's people to be anything but aggressively welcoming to anyone in their fellowship who thinks that life may not be working for them and is looking for hope. I, I am proud of God's people in this particular place for that very reason. So my question to the LGBT community is simply this. Would you be willing, interested, to simply have a conversation about the religious and philosophical underpinnings of why we think that your homosexual practice may not be life-giving for you. Does anyone even want to talk about it anymore? Are we going to continue to polarize like every single other aspect of our society has? And actually, to my great delight, I've actually found people in the LGBT community, in our community, who are actually willing to do just that. I'm thinking very specifically of the conversation that was podcasted uh, between my dear friend J.D. Shaw, the pastor of Grace Bible Church, um, and Jamie Harker. Uh, owner of the Violet Valley Bookstore down in Water Valley. The name of the podcast I would warmly recommend to you is called Help Me Understand. I think it's a model for how someone with our convictions and someone from the LGTB community can sit down and have actual real conversations. Did it solve anything? No. Not on the face of it, but it did get the communication going. There was no more polarization Truth of the matter is, I think that that may be a better place to start than being so preoccupied with needing to tell the community that we think what they're doing is wrong. Perhaps so. Look, let me, let, me, let me bring this in for a landing here. I realize that when we look at all these distortions, what invariably rises up is a sense of absolute wrestling and fear and shame. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what struggle you're going through. But the second that you touch upon sex, it tends to bring up all kinds of things. And you can ask yourself the question, is there any hope for healing? Well, of course there is. You know, in Genesis chapter 2, Moses tells us that our very first parents, when they were first introduced, were naked and unashamed. But after they rebel against God, we find out that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. It's very interesting. From that moment on, in the Bible, nakedness is a metaphor for shame for that embarrassment that you feel. So over and over again, you get this sort of struggle that people have. And for that reason, because sex goes so deeply into our own souls, easy answers just don't do. You know, a three-step plan for how to be sexually chaste is not going to happen. You're know, praying for some mystical spirit of purity to kind of take you over will not work. 
recommitting yourself to following the rules better. It's just not going to. I think recovery from these kinds of things is a long-term prospect. But the Bible, I think, gives us so much wisdom. We're going to revisit this in the spring when we get there. But, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has an interesting way of framing people's struggle with sexual lust. And he says something fairly radical in chapter 5, 29 through 30, when he says, look, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And if your hand causes it to sin, cut it off. Now, before you freak out about that, very early on in the church's history, within like a couple hundred years, the church officially outlawed um, self-mutilation as an as a actual application of what Jesus was saying. We don't believe that's what he was saying. We believe what he's talking about is, is the posture that God's people take as they deal with these deep-rooted struggles. And I heard one commentator say that you can distinguish it by struggling with your eye and with your hand. That is, your eye pertains to all the ways in which you see sexual attraction. And what I think that Jesus is saying is, is I've got to learn to adjust my eyes the way I'm seeing this. So oftentimes it requires us looking at our sexual struggles and saying, wait a minute, you, you can't save me. What am I doing here? I'm hoping that you're going to give me life. I'm hoping that you're going to give me meaning. And it can't do that. I've got to change the way I see it. But when Jesus talks about our hands, I think he's talking about our actions, the places I put myself, the things I expose myself to on a regular basis. Those things, too, have to be dealt with. But you notice the wisdom of putting them both together? I mean, think about how naive it is if I say to myself, well, I'm going to just work as hard as I really can to, to not put myself in front of any temptation, but I never change the way I'm viewing it. And that moralism will stop you in your tracks every time. But on the other hand, if you're working so hard just to change the way you think about it, I'm going to believe the gospel about this, but nothing about my patterns ever change? It's just kind of naive. Eyes, hands. There's a full-orbed way in which Jesus is saying, we've got to change the way we're looking at it and oftentimes change the ways in which we're acting. Both of those have to happen. But let me, let me finish with this one uh, last thought to draw all this together. Because again, I do think that God's people often wrestle with where do I start? Like, what do I do with my shame? Well, let me finish with this one last idea. You know, in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark, you have those two authors recording a detail about Jesus' crucifixion weekend um, that's a little disturbing because in both of those passages, it reports that as Jesus was beaten prior to going to the cross, that he was stripped naked as he did so. And I'll be honest with you, I've read that for years and thought to myself, why would you include that detail? Isn't it bad enough that your fallen Lord is suffering the things that he's suffering? you got to throw that little nugget in there to add insult to injury, it seems. Wouldn't you edit that out if you were trying to protect him? Unless, of course, you thought that it was important. Unless Matthew and Mark themselves understood that as Jesus was stripped naked, he was bearing our nakedness. He was bearing our shame. That in that moment, Jesus begins to embody the very thing that Adam and Eve had suffered from thousands of years prior to. And as he does so on the cross, he absorbs it and he neutralizes it. And it gives us an opportunity to have it taken away. Don't you see the promise that holds out? 
I mean, there's a real promise to looking at whatever it is that you've got floating through your head right now when it comes to past histories, to, to abuse in the past, to anticipation in the future of never being able to get over this. And in the end, Jesus knows that. And he bore it. And he bears it in his body. And he offers to his people a sense of hope and peace. Anybody else in this room besides me long for something like that? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, count me among that number. And count us among that number, Father, who have experienced the, Father, the onslaught of the world around us. Father, all five of those distortions we've probably all in varying measure wrestled with at some time. There's no difference. No one here stands aloof from this. So, Father, we ask that you would give us grace. Again, Father, to know that you made this institution, that you long for us to rejoice in it. And, Father, would you give us grace as we begin to plow through it, whether it deals with our eyes or our hands, whether maybe it's talking to somebody for the first time. Who knows? We pray that we would keep always in the middle of it the cross as you came to bear our shame and to bear our person. Would you show us that? Well, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.